0: Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Lauren Hebroni, coming to you live from Studio B and USC's Annenberg Media Center.
1: And I'm Taylor Brazil. It's Thursday, February 6th. Wow, it's been a crazy week in politics. On today's show, a final update on the impeachment proceedings, a winner still hasn't been declared in Iowa, and Trump and Pelosi go back and forth after Tuesday's State of the Union address. All that and more from Where We Are.
0: After four months of impeachment investigations, it's in President Donald Trump, we have a verdict. Yesterday, the United States Senate voted
2: on whether or not to remove Trump from office. Reporter Devin Kleiner breaks down the vote. President Trump was acquitted by the Senate on two counts. During the final impeachment vote, the trial, which began in December, had Trump facing charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Trump was found not guilty in a 52 to 48 vote and a 53 to 47 vote, respectively. Senator Mitt Romney made history during the trials when he was the first senator ever to cast a vote against a president of his own party. Romney knew the criticism he'd faced, but stuck with his opposing vote as a matter of conscience. Many Republican senators acknowledge that Trump leaning on a foreign leader for help in his own upcoming election campaign was wrong, but they believe that this infraction did not rise to the constitutional standard for removing a president from office. Although Trump was acquitted, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said that the impeachment will forever be a scar on his legacy, even though he was acquitted.
3: He's impeached forever, no matter what he says or whatever headlines he wants to carry around. You're impeached forever.
2: According to the Gallup polls, President Trump's approval ratings have gone up since the impeachment process began. That story was reported by Devin Kleiner.
1: In her weekly news conference this morning, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi spoke at length about the Senate's acquittal of President Trump and her reaction to the State of the Union.
4: Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi held a press conference this morning where she criticized President Donald Trump and defended her infamous decision to tear apart the State of the Union address. This is Pelosi's first public appearance since Trump's impeachment acquittal yesterday afternoon. Throughout the entirety of the conference, Nancy Pelosi strongly defended her actions and deemed them completely appropriate. She referred to Donald Trump's speech as a manifesto of mistruths that did not reflect the reality of the president's time in office.
3: And then you say to me, uh, tearing up his falsehoods, isn't that the wrong message? No, it isn't. It's just I have tried to be gracious with him, I'm always dignified. I thought that was a very dignified act compared to my exuberance, as I said.
4: Pelosi also condemned Trump for speaking poorly of Senator Mitt Romney at the National Breakfast Prayer earlier today. Romney was the only Republican to vote against his party and join Democrats in voting to convict Trump.
3: This morning the president said when people use faith as an excuse to do, I don't know if he said bad things, but whatever he said was just so completely inappropriate, especially at a prayer breakfast.
4: Pelosi does not believe her action will affect her ability to work with the president going forward.
1: That was reporter Hannah Thatcher.
0: President Trump also spoke this morning. He spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast, which is an annual bipartisan event hosted by Congress, which is an event where religious leaders and politicians usually gather in unity. Many thought the president used his platform to sow discord in the country. Joanne Jung has more.
5: President Trump proudly waved a newspaper with the bolded headline, Acquitted, at today's national prayer breakfast. This comes just the day after the close of the Senate hearing at which Trump was declared not guilty of two charges of impeachment. Utah Senator Mitt Romney was the only Republican to vote that Trump is guilty to abuse of power. Romney stated his religious faith as a major factor in his decision. At the National Prayer Breakfast this morning, Trump had this to say.
6: I don't like people
1: who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong.
5: The president also said,
1: My family, our great country, and your president have been put through a terrible ordeal by some very dishonest, and corrupt people.
5: The Senior Director of Research and Evaluation at the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture is Dr. Richard Flory. He told Annenberg Media that President Trump was using faith as a mechanism to gain power and said that Trump has no place to speak on the topic of religion. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi had this to say at a press conference today regarding President Trump.
3: I pray hard for him because he's so off the track of our constitution, our values, our country, the air our children breathe, the water they drink, and the rest.
5: It's clear that whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, religious faith or the lack thereof, is certainly playing a role in today's politics. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jaewan Jung.
1: The State of the Union and impeachment haven't been the only important political stories this week. As we said, it's been a busy week in politics. On Monday, Iowa voters participated in the nation's first contest of the 2020 Democratic cycle. But, as you may have heard, the results were quite delayed. With 97% of the vote accounted for, former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders have each gotten about 24% of the vote. Buttigieg is currently leading winning by just 0.2%, they are tied in an estimated delegates. Senator Elizabeth Warren is trailing in third with 18% of the vote, and former Vice President Joe Biden is in distant fourth with just 15%. Politics reporter and podcast host Luke Scorzell is here with us in the studio.
7: Yeah, this has been just kind of an absolutely crazy few days uh, in politics with the Iowa caucuses, the State of the Union impeachment. Uh, I think everyone was surprised by uh, what's happened.
1: Definitely, Um, definitely.
7: Maybe not with impeachment. But today we actually have Adam Brewster, who is a CBS News campaign reporter based in Iowa, and he's on the phone right now. Adam, thank you so much for uh, being here.
8: Thank you, Luke, for having me. How are you?
7: Pretty good. Uh, It's been a crazy day, but we we made it. So (laughs) (laughs) kind of just focusing in on this Iowa caucus, um, they've actually called for a re-canvas of the results. uh, And I'm kind of curious if you can explain what exactly that means to us.
8: So a re-canvassing of the results would be going over um, these math sheets, which is how Iowa determines how many delegates candidates win out of a given room. Um, They've been reporting popular vote numbers, but the way you win national delegates in Iowa, which is how the U.S. picks presidents, is by um, looking at uh, the statewide delegate total. And those are determined by a somewhat complex formula, in the rooms, everyone's supposed to fill out these math sheets a re canvas would involve looking over uh, those math
7: sheets yeah and with kind of so much confusion around the process a lot of uh, kind of people don't really know what's right and what's not um, what do you think that the results really will have an impact like they've had in past um, Iowa caucuses where the winner generally goes on to win the nomination especially for the Democratic Party
8: Right, it, it, Iowa has had a good track record on the Democratic side, going back to 1972. Seven out of the ten nominees who have uh, won the seven out of ten people who have won the Iowa caucuses have gone on to be the nominee. Now, only two of those have gone on to be president. Um, but obviously, it, it was a different type of year uh, for campaigns. And if, you know, if you normally you're a winner, and if you're a winner that night, you can say I've won off to New Hampshire, and you land in manchester or concord or wherever and you're the winner and you're you know cooking with gas in some capacity um and that obviously this year there was a much more uh, confusing narrative to say the least coming out of iowa on monday night
7: and one candidate who thought they would be a winner i think was joe biden and he's been the front runner for um, the democratic party going since he really announced Uh, but he came in fourth what do you think that means for biden moving forward is he still the front-runner, and does he actually have a chance?
8: It'll be interesting to see what happens in New Hampshire. Uh, we had reported here, though, in November, that the Biden campaign faced headwinds. We talked to people around Iowa who had questions um, about his ground operation and just a general questions about enthusiasm for him uh, as a candidate. Um, so while he, he has been strong in national polls, even polling here in Iowa uh, didn't always show him at the top. Um, his campaign has often said, you know, this is just Iowa is just a drop in the bucket of national delegates. So from a math perspective, it doesn't necessarily have a consequence, Uh, but it's a matter of whether the narrative will continue. Uh, Of course, he has a strong track record. He polls well um, with minorities, especially with African-American voters. South Carolina is the last early state to go, and he has um, had large leads there uh, for much of this cycle.
7: And going into New Hampshire next week, do you... How much momentum do the Sanders campaign and the Buttigieg campaign take into that race? Um, Is is this a kind of point where we can distinguish a new um, frontrunner maybe in one of them?
8: I I think, you know, they they are leaving Iowa, as you guys mentioned in your introduction, with a razor-thin margin separating them. And, you know, I think no matter what comes out of these numbers, finally – People around the country will just have questions about them. But, you know, they have been ahead of the pack in the rest of the sense. And I think then people are looking at New Hampshire to see what happens next. Uh, That's a traditional primary uh, with paper ballots uh, rather than, you know, the sort of complex caucus system, people standing in rooms and meeting certain percents in the rooms to win delegates. Um, So I think we'll have to see what happens in New Hampshire there. Mm -hmm.
7: And I think the question on maybe everyone's mind is, is this – the last time that we see Iowa as the first-in-the-nation caucus, and you've spent a lot of time on the ground there. Uh, what do you kind of sense coming out of this caucus?
8: I, I sense that there are definitely some people here in Iowa, some Democrats who are, admit that this might have been the last one privately, um, some of you know sources that I've talked to, um, not you know affiliated with the party but just around the state. Um, And people who are concerned. So but then there are others who say this happens every four years and they will rise. But there were questions going into the caucuses about things like Iowa's diversity and accessibility of the caucuses was a big story. Uh, How, you know, it's only at one hour of a night that you could go. And they tried to expand that a bit with the satellite caucuses. But it's not like there's early voting or you you have the entire day to get out there. Uh, so there are already all of these questions. Of course, you know Julian Castro, the former HUD secretary, had famously said that Iowa shouldn't be a state to go first. So there were many, many more questions, possibly an extra sense of ratcheted up pressure. And uh, the way the results have come out, it, it stands to question whether or not this was the last time Iowa will be the first caucus. We will probably know the answer to that soon, but I don't. We don't know what soon is. It could be a couple years before we know the answer to that.
7: Yeah, well, I think we'll we'll all be kind of anxiously awaiting that. So th- thank you so much for coming on today, Adam.
8: Thank you for having me.
7: Yep, uh, Have a nice day. So again, that was Adam Brewster, a CBS uh, News campaign reporter who has spent a lot of time in Iowa. I'm curious for my host, do you know what a caucus is?
1: I'm going to be honest with you guys. I just found out Monday because I had to ask someone. We were doing an event here, and I was like, do not make fun of me (laughs) because I don't know. And the person who I asked like I don't know either. It's okay. (laughs) So that made me feel really good. Um, And then they kind of explained to me just how it's a really important part of the the primaries and the debates. And um, it was just intense. And everything was delayed. What about you?
0: Well, yes, I do. And um, I feel like just having a family that, you know, I'm from L.A. And I feel like we've always been really invested in politics. Listening to the news has always just been, you know, a really fundamental part of, you know, my life here. And yeah, thank you so much for that, Luke. That was awesome. Yes, yeah, thank yeah. You guys yes. For of course. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. That's all really interesting. Apparently, the Associated Press just put out a statement that they are currently unable to declare the winner out of Iowa.
1: Yeah, the whole process, as I said, is pretty confusing. Yeah,
0: we actually had three reporters from Annenberg Media right here go to Iowa and cover the caucuses over the weekend. Reporter Angie Shroud spoke with USC students Abhinanda Anahinda Bhattacharya, Austin Pei, and Morgan Stevens about their experience watching the caucus process unfold and the confusion they saw when the data polling was delayed.
9: Abhinanda, tell me about what it was like to actually be in the room while like the caucus was happening and while people were going to like different corners and stuff.
10: Basically, you come in and you align. You stand in a part of the room where your candidate that you want to vote for or caucus for is being represented. So if you're interested in caucusing for Bernie Sanders, you go stand there. Um, So it was really interesting to see all these people just standing in a room. They're trying to get people to come over to their side. And then they have another alignment, which means they'll count how many people are in each group. You need 15% to be viable. So for example, in our caucus, Andrew Yang had maybe four or five people in his corner. So they had to disperse and find other people. And it was very interesting to see you know, Elizabeth Warren supporters walk over to the Andrew Yang people and being like, hey, have you thought about joining us for whatever reason? Um, so people are shuffling around the room. It's chaotic. It's fun. You feel this energy in the room that um, I've never really experienced anything like it.
9: Like it's a entirely social experience. So a lot of people who, you know, Warren supporters and Bernie supporters who online are depicted as at each other's throats here are joking and laughing and having a good time. Um, Warren at our caucus was not viable. Out of a 27-person threshold, she only had 23. So it was interesting to see all the Bernie supporters go over to her camp and be like, hey, you know, we know your candidate's not viable, but we've got some space over here. And people would, you know, reluctantly but wryly smile and shuffle over to the other corners of the room and laugh about it. The caucus system in general obviously isn't used in a lot of states. Do you think that more states should have caucuses in general? Uh, No. (laughs) I think as we're kind of seeing, it's becoming a bit of an arbitrary system and it's not entirely democratic as well. I think the reason that we're still having Iowa caucus and still having it go first is because it's been like that for over 50 years and we're kind of stuck in an old tradition. But Clearly, uh, from the evidence of last night, caucuses can fail and the voting process is much more sound, I would say, when we have paper ballots and we have, you know, counts and tabulations at the end of the night. I think it's also a bit of a problem because people were going into it expecting to have the numbers at the end of the night. But in many cases, like in California, for example, we don't have final numbers until weeks after the, the polls close. What was it like when the votes didn't like come in, being in Iowa, when the like app failed? We left the caucus around 8.30 or so, I think, somewhere around there. And we were excited. We were happy. We had a great time at the caucus. It was fun to cover. It was fun to talk to voters. And, you know, we're doing like the hour, hour and a half drive back to Des Moines, back to our hotel to maybe head to a victory party. And we start to hear uh, some yelling on MSNBC on the radio. And we're like, what is going on? And our professor, Christina Bellantoni, turns the volume up. And we start to hear that there's complete radio silence from the IDP, the Iowa Democratic Party. <laughs> and it seems as though that we won't actually have a vote that night. For all of us, first time, you know, caucus coverers, it was obviously novel.
11: People were really confused. And I don't think that this looks good for Iowa being first. You know, Julian Castro came out saying how Iowa shouldn't be first anymore because it's an undemocratic process. Iowa's nearly 90% white, and there's people who are working class that are working shifts at that one time uh, on that one day that won't be able to participate in the caucus. So there's been a lot of criticism toward Iowa being first, and this just kind of mounted on top of all of that criticism to now kind of bolstering those people who argue that Iowa shouldn't be first and we should switch over to primaries instead of caucuses in general. Did you guys learn anything new about how our presidential election system works from visiting Iowa this weekend? It can be a mess sometimes. Democracy is messy. One thing positive to say about the caucuses is that this is a process that is very civically engaged. This is something where you're you're talking to your neighbors and your friends and your family members if they happen to be in that precinct, and you're trying to convince them to vote for the candidate that you back. And these are conversations and dialogues that you have to have. And I think in our polarized state that we're in in America right now, that's really important. So I kind of learned the significance of having those dialogues and being civically engaged in a way where you're voting for who the next president of the country is going to be.
1: There are also a lot of students on campus with opinions on the Democratic primary, which, as you've heard, got off to a rough start with the caucuses on Monday night. Yeah,
0: California's primary is less than a month away. It's going to happen on Super Tuesday when more than a third of the
1: U.S. population will be able to vote. Reporter Kari Spencer spoke with USC students about their voting plans.
12: Have you decided who you're going to vote for? No. I don't know if I'm going to vote. I feel like people who vote should probably have a good understanding of what they're voting for, and I don't have the time or the mental agility to, like, actually get a good understanding, so I feel like it's not fair for me to vote.
9: See, I thought I had decided who I was going to vote for, but now I might not know. Originally, I was planning on voting for Biden, and not necessarily because I align with his beliefs, but more so because I believed he was the only one with the potential to beat out Donald Trump. Um, And now that the caucuses are showing that he might not even have the support to get the nomination I think I might as well more go with a candidate that more aligns with my beliefs.
12: For me personally I'm still set on Warren but if she doesn't win then definitely Sanders because that's who I wanted to win last time Um, so I would say in general that it will definitely set like the tone for everyone else personally I still want to vote for Elizabeth Warren.
13: Depending on how far ahead Bernie is, because it's looking like he's already pretty far ahead. Yeah. So depending on how far ahead he is, it may, it may, I may choose to vote for him just for the purpose of we have to get Trump out of office.
1: Be sure to register to vote. In California, you have until February 18th to register for the primary. Get at it. Before we get to Super Tuesday on March 3rd, we've got
0: three more primaries and three more debates. With Monday's Iowa caucus having yet to produce a winner due to technical difficulties, Democrats are hoping for a smoother process to end off this week. The Democratic candidates running for the presidential nomination will face off in New Hampshire tomorrow in the first of the three Democratic primary debates scheduled for February. After the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire is the new traditional primary.
1: Friday's debate will be the eighth in this primary cycle. It'll take place at St. Anselm College in Gulfstown, For the last 60 years, the college town has been a must-stop for all major contenders in their bid to the White House. The candidates who will be there Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew
0: Yang. During the January debate in Des Moines, the candidates clashed on a number of major issues, including commitment of troops in the Middle East, the future of the healthcare industry, and trade deals. It is predicted that they will debate these topics as well as the economy, foreign policy, and education. Candidates Buttigieg and Sanders tie to the caucus and will most likely receive the most airtime at the debate.
1: I'm Taylor Brazil. we're glad you're with us, for From Where We Are. And I'm Lauren Hebroni, it's
0: 48 minutes past the hour. Coming up, the undergraduate student government presidential elections, how online shopping is reshaping retail, and a bit of controversy surrounding this week's Oscar. Stay tuned.
1: Early last week, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a public health emergency of global concern. USC released a statement instructing faculty and staff to postpone any non-essential university-related travel to China amid concerns about the growing threat of the coronavirus outbreak. But campus officials say their risk on campus is low. On Monday, Annenberg Radio spoke with USC Chief Health Officer Sarah von Orman. Isaiah Murdoch has more.
6: Dr. Sarah Van Orman is USC's chief health officer. She says that in addition to limiting travel to China, the university has decided to cancel study abroad programs. The decision came after the Center for Disease Control and the U.S. State Department issued travel warnings. So
14: we at USC adhere very closely to those. Um, and so um, any planned trips coming up in the next week, uh, a few months have have already been canceled and then we're we're looking forward and you know into the the ne- the coming months about what might be coming and looking for alternatives should it become necessary.
6: She says that while coronavirus has become a global issue, that doesn't mean it's a big risk to people in Los Angeles. And if the virus ever did come to USC, Vin Orman's not too worried.
14: Even if we had a case, you know Classes would continue. Um, there wouldn't be a need for people to be whole-scale alarm. It would probably at most affect, you know, a handful, maybe a few dozen people.
6: Van Orman says coronavirus isn't the only disease out there.
14: Right now, we have really bad influenza um, in L.A. and on campus. And so for any one student who's worried about what to do, I would tell them the thing they need to be worried about is getting sick with the flu right now.
6: If you're feeling sick or have questions, call USC Student Health. For Annenberg Media, I'm Isaiah Murtaugh.
0: Glitz, glamor, the bright lights of Hollywood.
1: And a striking lack of diversity.
0: That's right. This year's Academy Award winners are under fire again for their homogenous set of nominees. Tay, have you seen any of the nominated movies?
1: The only nominated movie I've seen is Hair Love. What about you? Have you seen it? Yeah, but I've been meaning to. Um, I've only seen Little Woman and Ford vs. Ferrari. Well, there has been a lot of talk about the lack of diversity among this year's nominees. Personally, I think other actors and actresses could have been nominated alongside Cynthia Erivo from Harriet. She did an amazing job, but there are others who could have been nominated for various categories and roles.
0: You know, Taylor, I completely agree. I see more diversity in documentaries like the short subject documentary category, with St. Louis Superman and Walk, Run, Cha-Cha, for example. I hope to see this unfortunate trend come to an end
1: sooner than later. I wonder if that's going to stop people from watching this Sunday. Let's find out. Reporters Alex Graff and Sophia James spoke with students around campus to hear what they think. Let's take a listen.
12: This Sunday, Hollywood's biggest names will come together to celebrate the 92nd annual Academy Awards. A recent report by the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative found there was increased diversity across the film industry over the last decade. But award shows like the Oscars have failed to recognize this progress. At this year's ceremony, no women are nominated for Best Director, and across all four acting categories, only one non-white actor, Cynthia Erivo, is nominated. The Inclusion Initiative examined the portrayal of underrepresented groups in popular films over the past 11 years. They found that, among over 1,000 films analyzed, only 5% had female directors. The voting populace of the Academy also appears to lack diversity. A voting member of the Academy anonymously told The Hollywood Reporter that she only wanted an American director to win because, quote, the Oscars are an American thing. Reporter Alex Graff talked to USC students to hear their opinions on the controversy surrounding the lack of diversity at this year's awards.
7: There's been pretty systematic discrimination within the awards for a long time. I have a friend whose dad is a part of the Academy. He didn't watch Parasite. They're picking the nominations, and he just doesn't even want to watch one of the movies because he doesn't like reading subtitles. Like That's not necessarily directly him being racist, but like, I mean, your whole job is to watch these movies and you're discriminating based off of a language barrier. When
2: it comes to discrimination it's like at at every level they're not just lacking in in representation as far as women, they're also lacking representation as far as ethnic and racial background and and it's really worrisome because these are the people that get to shape the way that we see our world and they're the people that shape how we think about things and feel about things because I do think that media is really important so I wish that more people had a seat at the table and had a say as to which stories get to be told, which stories get to be seen.
12: Academy
9: is like a group of specific individuals that vote on films. Um, and I think that maybe something needs to be done as far as who is making up that academy and what their like their beliefs are uh, towards people of different skin colors, different um, sexual orientations and uh, different
12: genders. Those were the voices of Aiden Takami, Andrea Porras, and Kyle Mitchell. The Academy Awards will air this Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific time on ABC, where we'll see who takes home each coveted golden statue. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sophia James.
1: When was the last time you bought something from Amazon?
0: Honestly, this morning. You know, I was too lazy to walk over to Target, so I just ordered a pair of
10: socks
1: on Amazon. How about you, Tay? Um... I bought some sage incense the other day. Oh, you know, you got to keep great. the energy right, you know? Make yeah. sure when you use them, if you ever do, open a window, because oh. you're going to defeat the whole purpose of <laughs> buying those, and it's not, it's not worth it. So That's yeah. a great call. <laughs> Online shopping is killing traditional stores. Macy's announced Tuesday it would be closing a fifth of its stores. As Lindsay Biaser reports, more than 2,000 people will lose their jobs because of this. As part of a three year
15: savings plan, Macy's announced it would be tightening up their teams and closing down stores to lower costs and bring teams closer together. The store closings come after 2019, the biggest year for store closings to date. Over 9,300 stores closed throughout the 12 months, including companies Forever 21 and Gap. As online shopping continues to grow, MoneyWise predicts another 75,000 stores could be lost by 2026. The big question is, Why are stores closing at rapid rates while online stores continue to boom? Here's USC professor Omar El-Sawi, who teaches information systems in the Marshall School of Business.
14: You can see that
8: uh, connection between uh, digital and and life, I suppose, uh, uh, that's becoming stronger. And and, and the companies who know how to do that uh, will thrive.
15: Sawi also says physical stores now come secondary to the online store experiences.
14: We have to change our way of thinking at this point in time to be digital first and physical second.
15: As more and more stores close and consumers choose online shopping for all their needs, the future of in-person retail remains a mystery. For Annenberg Media, I'm Lindsay Beister. (music)
1: you got any plans for valentine's day
0: you know i have a wonderful Valentine's day plans with all my friends how about you
1: i'm going to see the photograph and i'm really excited about it i love me some Issa ray and lakeith stanfield we're getting pretty close to valentine's day and the end of cuffing season you know like Winter, spring, summer, fall, cuffing. Unfortunately, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, if you're also a little unsure about that fifth season, Celine Mendiola breaks it down in today's Root Source.
9: Winter is coming? Yeah. It's cuffing season. Cuffing? What is cuffing season?
13: That's a good question, BuzzFeed. According to its first definition on Urban Dictionary in 2011, Cuffing season happens when, quote, the cold weather and prolonged indoor activity causes singles to become lonely and desperate to be cuffed. Yes, there's a reason why cuffed sounds like the word handcuffs. When someone is cuffed, they're literally locked down with their partner. At least for the remainder of cuffing season. Urban Dictionary says that people generally get cuffed around Halloween, and break up a month after Valentine's Day.
2: You won't drop the 3 months i love you bomb, which means we won't have a cute enough picture to post on Valentine's Day, which means we will have nothing to fight about in March, ensuring our breakup on March 13th,
10: just in time for summer.
13: This sounds too good to be true, but this phenomenon may actually have roots in evolutionary psychology. The YouTube channel SciShow Psych explains it
1: as... This is all part of what's known as social thermoregulation theory. The idea is that temperature regulation is super important to animals, and one of the ways to warm up is to huddle close to others. So, given our already social nature, we may have evolved to seek out others as a
0: way to regulate our body temperature.
13: When the weather warms again, though, this desire to be warm with someone dies down, and breakup season begins. But it doesn't have to be that way. Those that start dating during cuffing season can make their relationships last, as long as they're willing to work on it, like Brian Gosling in The Notebook.
9: So it's not gonna be easy, it's gonna be really
6: hard. and We're gonna have to work at this every day, but I wanna do that because I want you. I want all of you, forever.
13: But don't worry if you're not tied down this cuffing season. Many people usually don't, and that's okay. Because, as a wise BuzzFeed staff member says,
0: I am not going to worry about it because I'm single and proud of it.
13: For Annenberg Media,
0: I'm Celine Mandiola. You know, Taylor, I never thought that the weather could have such an impact on my love life. How about you?
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I never thought about that. Um, it is a thing though, and I hate it because people be like, Oh, it's cuffing season," I've and then, that. That and I just be like, "Listen." Either year-round, you're either ready or you're not. Like, just take your time. I don't think you need to do things just because it's in season or not season. Exactly. Like, it should be a natural
12: process. Exactly.
0: Natural
1: yeah. and pure. That's all we want <laughs> in this life.
0: Very true. All right. And that's all we have time for today on today's From Where We Are. Luke Scorzell, Iona White, Joshua Chang produced today's show. We also got some help from Evan Chikovic. Jikbo-
1: Yuki Liang is our technical operator, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music. Subscribe to From Where We
0: Are on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. I'm Lauren Hebroni.
1: And I'm Taylor Bazil. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again next time From Where We Are.